Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi, y'all. I'm gonna, uh, my name is Gabe McKinney. I'm on the leadership team here, and I'm going to share the scripture for today's message. And it is coming out of um, Ephesians 4, 29-32. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. One of the joys of living in a town for almost 19 years is that this city is littered with memories that are tied to locations. I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but certain places hold specific memories for me. One in particular I was reminded of recently, I was driving on Lamar, and there's that old Austin Java there. You guys know that one, like right next to the stadium, like the small stadium? Uh, I have a memory from around 17 years ago. I had a meeting with someone uh, there. It's a, I love Austin Java. That spot was great, but the parking was awful. So after the meeting, I went outside, uh, said, said goodbye to my friend. I got in my car, and a car, you know, intelligently pulled up behind me to claim that spot. You know, you know the drill. We put the blinker on. It's mine. Everyone back off. So they did that, but it's so tight that when I put it in reverse, I could pull out a little bit, but not enough to get fully out of the spot. And so what do we do? We keep backing up a little bit more to kind of let them know, like, all right, I'm coming back. This is about to be yours. Just get out of the way. So I kept doing it, and they wouldn't budge. Like, they wouldn't back out. So I didn't know what to do. So I kept backed out a little bit more, and then they started laying on the horn, thinking I was going to hit them. Now, this lasted so long that people are sitting outside on the patio are staring at us. And things start to escalate. And, at, you know, not sure what to do. I get out of the car, like a you know, mature, emotionally stable person, and I go, what do you expect me to do? Like, what do you want me to do right now? And this college student, this, this female college student, rolled down the window, and she goes, your car's in drive, you dumb F word. And I go, what? And I turn, and my car's in drive. Like, you know those, like, you know, concrete pillars that have a chain? They are slowly bending down and, you know, like, not sure what to do. I dove in headfirst into my car with my hands, stopping it, putting it on park, and I kicked back out, and these two college students are just cackling, laughing, and they just drive off. Like, they gave up on Java. And that day, I gave up on Java too. I've never been back to that place. Uh, even though I'm sure those college students probably forgot about that moment like a week later uh, after telling all their friends, I think about those words all the time. I've never been called that before, thankfully never since. But I think about that all the time. And, and you know, those kind of words are funny. They, we can laugh them off. But there's other words that that we hold on to uh, that are harder to laugh off, the words that scar us, the words that sow seeds into our personhood and our, and our mindset and our framework of understanding ourselves. 
Uh, it just reminds me that words have power. Words have real power. Rabbi Abraham Heschel, he said this reflecting on how God chose to create in the Genesis account that words create worlds. Heschel's riffing off of the creation account in Genesis where God chose to speak creation into life, into existence. It was the power of words. And, and for him, this rabbi is talking about how words have the ability to create worlds, worlds that, you know, that exist within us, within our society. And sadly, our, world, our words are creating worlds of contention, disdain, hatred, all around us. So for us, in this series of being peacemakers, we've been already on a journey together about what does it mean to find peace within ourselves so that we can hopefully embody that in the world. We've talked about last week about learning to listen well. That's an essential step of being a peacemaker. And this week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to have a vocabulary of peacemaking. Because for us to be peacemakers, we must have a deep appreciation for the power that's withheld within the words that we say. Proverbs 12, 18, this ancient uh, Jewish uh, wisdom literature tells us so many things about the power of words, but here is one. Pro- Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. This right here holds the power of words. It can do incredibly damaging things and restorative things, right? Words can either be a sword or they can be a source of healing. They could be a weapon of violence or they could be a tool of healing and peace. For us to be people who follow in the example of Jesus, our Savior in our way, we need to learn what does it mean to have a vocabulary that makes peace in this world. And uh, with this Proverbs in mind, I'd like to organize this message today in two parts. One is on on learning to set aside uh, combative vocabulary, learning to set aside a vocabulary that causes damage. That's the first part. And the second part is utilizing redemptive the redemptive power of words for us to understand how we can bring healing through our words. So first, uh, for us to step into this, is we need to learn to set aside a vocabulary that's combative, that's damaging or violent. So as we heard in our scripture reading, Paul calls the church uh, to get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. These are all actions that take place with words, right? And Paul's saying, you need to, to take all that form of talking and communication, you need to set that aside. You need to get rid of it. And I think if Jesus could see the state of our church, Jesus would probably say the same thing. How easily we just dismiss each other or groups of people. The vocabulary that's been normalized in our culture, it fosters such bitterness, such anger and rage the brawling that is just commonplace in our society, on our social media, it's just normative. We just learn to expect it. The slander that we do to one another, or along with every form of malice. For me, the first step in setting aside combative language is actually becoming more and more aware of how numb we are to it. And I've even been thinking about like, how our vocabulary, so much of our vocabulary is birthed from violence. Can I give you an example of it? Okay, let me demonstrate. So I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can do it well. I'm a little gun shy, but I'll take a stab at it. I'll shoot from the hip. I hope this doesn't blow up in my face. It's okay, I'm a straight shooter. Actually, I think I'm killing it. This idea is the bomb 
I think it's a dynamite idea. Should I continue in bullet points? Are you blown away yet? Am I slaying it? Is that what the kids say now? Slaying it? Is this getting me too much? Am I just killing time? Did I jump the gun? Is this overkill? All right, I'm at the end of my rope. This was a blast. I think I'm out. Anyone wants a red shotgun? We laugh about it. Not as much as I thought you would laugh about it. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I do think how we normalize words of violence, and it has like this numbing effect on us. But it goes deeper than that. I think, I think of the subtle violence that we do for each other, against each other, with all the things we casually speak. In particular, how language dehumanizes. A language that's birthed in the combative culture of our world dehumanizes so much. If your goal is to perpetuate violence and oppression, a necessary step is to, to make is to make that person less than human. If I can make this person less than human with my, my language, then I can abuse them, use them, oppress them. And I, so if you use words that diminish the God-given value of another, it's so much easier to be in, in the context uh, of being against this other person and using them. For instance, think of the difference between slave and enslaved. If one calls another a slave, their identity is set. That person's value is merely as an instrument. But if you use the word enslaved person, we recognize that this individual is born like anyone else, but was once taken and claimed by the hands of oppression. And they have been enslaved. That's what happened to them. It's not their identity. Furthermore, the only way that someone is enslaved is that there is an enslaver. Not an owner, not a master, an enslaver. Do you feel the difference? Do you see the difference in those two different ways of speaking the language of those two different words? Do you feel how that just has ripple effects? What might be seen as, oh, that's just a, cho a choice. That's just a woke vocabulary. No, it's not. It's learning to set aside a combative language for something more, more beautiful and more true. It is so important that we are thoughtful with the words that we use. I want to use, I want to begin using more and more vocabulary that's rooted in peace and in dignity. I want to use that vocabulary more and more. I've been thinking about the Irish poet, Patrick Otuma. He's someone that I, I got, became familiar with uh, during my, sabbat, my sabbatical experience. I've heard of him for a while, but I really began doing a deep dive into him while I was doing my, my sabbatical experience in Ireland. Part of Patrick's vocation is not only a poet with a deep appreciation of words, but also of that of a peacemaker. And I found a story of a poem called The, Ped the Pedagogy of Conflict, to be incredibly helpful in evaluating the language we use. So we're going to watch this video now together. So the, the Pedagogy of Conflict is a poem that I wrote following a, um, uh, a, a week-long encounter with folks from all across Ireland of a whole variety of political and religious points of view, um, as well as folks from Israel and Palestine from a whole variety of political and religious points of view and our aim wasn't to come to agreement in the room but our aim was to practice in the room something that might be beneficial for continuing to be in conversation with each other to learn from each other and to educate each other in terms of um, the pasts that we didn't hear the other comprehend or um, and in the room at one point somebody said um, that they'd murdered someone and they'd served a sentence for that and 
somebody else said, don't use the word murder, because they were part of the same political point of view. They said, mm. um, you know, lives were lost in the context of conflict. Don't use the word murder. That person said, I'll use whatever word I want. And somebody else said, oh, I killed somebody. And another person disagreed with that. Somebody else said, I only ever shot at legitimate targets. And then somebody else said, well, I suppose that made me a legitimate target then when your organization shot at me when I was a child. And so I found myself thinking about grammar and numbers and words as a result of that. And there's a, there's a poem, a longer poem called The Pedagogy of Conflict. And I'll read the third part of it here. When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days I've been counting lives. So I count one life, one life, one life, one life, one life. Because each time is the first time that that life has been taken. Legitimate target has 16 letters and one long, abominable space between two dehumanizing words. As a culture, we have been taught to see others as legitimate targets. If not of actual violence, it's the emotional violence that we dole out with the harming words that we use. Words of disdain, of hatred, of judgment. And sadly, followers of Jesus are just as guilty of dehumanizing language as anyone else. And what makes it worse is that we have used scripture to do so. The Bible has been weaponized to back misogyny, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, <clears throat> and homophobia. The Bible has defended the right to enslave people, to justify wars, to subjugate women. We have pushed our young people into conversion therapy using the Bible, and we have caused so much harm. The church has taken the vocabulary of disdain and of violence from this world, and we have baptized it in the name of Jesus. And friends, that is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. This is what it means for us to set aside a vocabulary set in, in violence and disdain. We need to learn to see how language dehumanizes other people so that we can find a way to be peacemakers that are deeply rooted in the compassion and humility of Jesus. If we are to learn a vocabulary of peacemaking, we need to learn not only to disarm a vocabulary that dehumanizes, but also there's a second part to this. We need to find out how our language feeds tribalism and to set that aside as well. Tribalism, it takes something that's really healthy, a longing for community, a longing for belonging, and it does something really, really dangerous with it. Because tribalism, many people define it as tribalism is belonging gone bad. It is healthy to find your people, right? But sadly, uh, we are also find a sense of community and identity by acknowledging who we are all against. As the saying goes, nothing, nothing unifies like a common enemy. When Jesus walked Israel, that culture was also deeply entrenched in tribalism. There were lines between Jews and Gentiles. There was also disdain for those half-breeds, the Samaritans, who were called dogs, dehumanized words, right? 
There is also a separation within the Jewish community. There's different factions between the faithful ones, the different views of religious certainty that were poised against each other. And all of them had a sense of tribalism, correctness, and power tied to it. But then Jesus arrives on the scene, and with the words that he uses and the relationship he forms, he begins to push against all of those lines of tribalism. He begins to see and call out the dignity of one another and embrace them in relationship. He began to call out their true God-given value. And this really, really, really upset the religious elite. So what did, in particular, the Pharisees do? Well, they began to say, well, he must have power from the devil, right? If, they're not, if he's not with us, then he's with them, and we're like the ultimate them, right? And so Jesus had harsh words for them. So just to say, like, not all the words we say are soft and gentle. Jesus also had harsh words, too. But then Jesus said these words in Matthew 12. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are, the, who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Harsh harsh. Strict words from Jesus, right? But notice for this, that what is the, the fruit that Jesus is talking about? What are the fruit? I had always thought the fruit is the actions that, we, that we, we live out. But here, the fruit is actually the words that are spoken. Whatever is within us, whatever is stored up in us, will be made evident by our words, will be made fruit by our words. That will tell what kind of tree we are, what kind of substance we have within us. will be tested by our words that we use. We'll be held accountable, Jesus says, by these words, and we will either be acquitted or condemned by them. Like Jesus, we spend our days in a world that's full of imaginary walls, pinning us against each other. These walls separate us and them. It can be walls set by religion, by political partisanship, or by the greatest division of all, what we make of Taylor Swift. I don't get it. She's an amazing artist. I just don't get it. The more entrenched tribalism becomes, the more our vocabulary becomes combative. And we are trained in how to speak against and judge others. A vocabulary of peacemaking, though, will be highly sensitive to the labels and words that we use to reduce every other person to something else. We'll be very, very allergic to using words that that are perfectly designed to pin people against one another. And instead, we will hopefully find language or vernacular that's spacious, that creates room for nuance. That is part of our goal with our third-way culture, is to get out of the the enemy-making machine that our culture has, where we slap labels and just judge people as easily as like one-dimensional identities. Instead, we reject our world that exists in binary polarity, 
so that we can get out of the disdain that's so easily stoked with one another and actually gather together with empathy and with humility, with compassion, so that we can learn from one another as we put the life and the teachings of Jesus in the center of our being. And adapting one's vocabulary is more than just behavior modification or virtue signaling. James 3 actually talks about how the language we use is like a rudder. I love this, this visual picture for me. A rudder is a small aspect of a boat or a plane, but this small little thing will direct the entire being. The tongue is small, but it will direct our hearts, and it, our tongues also direct with who we become. So end, we end up becoming the people that we, we speak into being. Like Heschel said, words create worlds. I think also words create who we become. So if we end up using vocabulary that's rooted in violence and dehumanization, our hearts will grow darker and heavier. Our words have this transformative power. And we cannot step into the role of peacemaking while also holding hatred for the other. Peacemakers exist outside the tribalism of our day. Okay, who's ready for some positivity? Yeah? Okay, Where's my Enneagram 7s? Let's get over this part and into something fun. All right, so the language of peacemaking isn't, also, isn't just learning to, to disarm harmful language or violent language. It's also learning to see the redemptive power, the generative power of words, because words can also bring peace. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be an advocate against oppression later on in this series, but today I want to talk about how we can use words that bring healing. Uh, like our scripture, ha- scripture said, uh, reading had earlier, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. It's about being, uh, being built up so that it may benefit those who listen. Words build people. That can be a deeply healing and restorative word that's said to one another. It could be an affirmation said over someone else. I'm reminded of Mark Twain's quote that he once said, I can live two months on a good compliment. <laughs> I think many of us can. Because words are generative. Like they create life and they create hope. Jesus met people in their needs and he transformed their lives and their being through the power of words. He expanded their imagination and rooted them in hope. For instance, I've been thinking about this so much this week, I don't know why, but I've been thinking about Jesus' words to the criminal who was dying next to him on that dark hill. And this man, he, he lived a dark life. He was found convicted. He was, this was the last moments of his life. And in this last moments, he defended Jesus from the other criminal. And then he just simply asked Jesus, will you remember me? And then Jesus could have said of some rope blessing, or he said, sure, or Jesus could be concerned with himself, and his, you know, he's literally dying. But instead, Jesus said these powerful words, today you will be with me in paradise. Think of the power of these words, not only the power of this sentence, but the power of each word. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, not after you paid your debts, not after you spent your time getting what you deserved in purgatory or whatever, today, like today, you will be. Your life and your existence isn't in the past, it isn't done, 
This isn't the end of your story. You will be. You'll be with me. You're not dying alone. You're not going to live alone ever again. You are promised to be with me in paradise. Think of the juxtaposition in that bleak, dark moment on that hill called death. And Jesus promises this man paradise. Think of the power of those words. Do you sense that in every single word that Jesus said to him? Think of the peace that it must have brought this man on his final moments of his life from despair and pain to all of a sudden the sense of peace. Though we might have cutting words that have stayed with us throughout our lives, our lives can also be marked by words that have brought peace. I am literally standing here by the fact that people saw me, believed me, and spoke me into being. And I know that I'm not alone. I know it's the same for you too. Peacemakers will be people who not only set aside a vocabulary that harms, but also they believe in the power of blessings. Of blessings. Not what you say after someone sneezes, but like a real blessing, you know? In the creation account in Genesis, God created man and woman, and marveling at what was formed, the very first thing that God did was, the scripture says that God blessed them. God blessed them. Not only that, but after seeing that the humanity in the garden, God said, this is so good. And I think that we have been living from that place ever since. The very first thing that was spoken over the human soul is the word of blessing. And I think that we still long for that. We still long for that in, in our days. God then told Abraham, I will bless who you bless, and I will curse who you will curse. And if we can be honest, can we just say that seems really dangerous <laughs> for God to say, like, whoever you bless, I'm going to bless. Whoever you curse, I'm going to curse. But this is what God chose to do. God commissioned us to be people to go into this world with the power of blessing. But then Jesus flipped it all around. Rather than his followers being commissioned to go into this world, doling out blessings and curses like some divine weapon, Jesus said, bless your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Jesus sent his followers in this world to establish peace, not in the way that this world functions, but through the power of surprised blessings. Jesus' ministry has continued now through, through our words, through our, gener our generative words of blessings. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he said, a blessing is the visible, perceptible, effective proximity of God. A blessing demands to be passed on. Do you know when you speak blessing over someone else, God is proximate. God draws near. When we bless others, we demonstrate Jesus' compassion and nearness of love and mercy. So as peacemakers, as peacemakers in the tradition of Jesus, we go through this world believing that people have a longing to be seen and a longing to receive a blessing, a word that brings life and healing. It can be called out in seeing the goodness in another, especially when that person disbelieves it in themselves. It can be calling forth the true identity in the other when they feel lost and hopeless. I know how uh, John O'Donohue explains a blessing. I find it beautiful. What do you bless with? Or where do you bless from? When you bless another, you first gather yourself you reach below your surface mind and personality down into the deeper source within you, namely the soul. 
Blessing is from soul to soul. And the key to who you are is your soul. When we speak blessing to another, it's from a beloved child of God to a beloved child of God. That, I love that picture because blessing from soul to soul is, is intimate. It's gentle. It, it sounds vulnerable. But man, it's powerful. Theologian and author Henry Nouwen, he had a reputation as a Catholic intellectual. He, he taught at places like Yale and Harvard, you know, Ivy League, prestigious places. But eventually he had a sense of crisis in his life. And he would become a chaplain for a home with people with intellectual and emotional challenges called Dayspring. And think of the, the movement from, you know, Harvard to a place uh, like that. And in his book, Life of the Beloved, Henry Nowman tells a story about a woman named Janet who lived in the community and she was having a hard time. One day, Janet found uh, Henry Nowen and asked him for a blessing. And being in the Catholic tradition that Nowen's from, he said in a rote way, he said a blessing as he placed his thumb over her forehead. And he said the blessing that he had said countless times before that. And when he was done with the blessing, Janet opened up her eyes and looked at him frustrated and unsatisfied. And she said to him, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> she said, I want a real blessing. And uh, Henry Nouwen was taken back in some, to some degree to stall for time. He said, can I give you a blessing tonight at our community's prayer service? And she agreed. And when that time came, at the time of the prayer service, the community had gathered, and Henry Nowen was still unsure of what to do. This was off script for him, right? And he told the members of the community that Janet had asked for a special blessing, and at that point, Janet jumped up from her seat, walked up to Henry, and immediately just wrapped him in a tight hug. And not sure what to do, he hugged her back, and he reminded her of all the ways that she was remarkable. He wrote, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house, and the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little bit low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are. You are a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. And when he was done with his blessing, Henry noticed that Janet had a big, satisfied smile. She had gotten the blessing that she needed. But as soon as she left Henry's arms, the next person raised their hand. I want a blessing too. And as it went through all the different people whom that community serves, they all received their blessing. And then the staff began to raise their hands as well. And it was on that day that Henry Nouwen recognized the importance of blessing. Nouwen demonstrates what a blessing is, soul to soul, words of affirmation, of kindness, of truth that's baptized in grace and love from God. In many ways, it mirrors the words of, over Jesus' baptism, you are my son, whom I love, and you I am so pleased 
It declares a true identity. It declares the reality of God's love. And it speaks to the goodness of one's personhood that goes beyond all the titles we have, all of the accolades we, we go for, and all the little toys and trinkets we try to gather to, to prove who we are. A true blessing speaks soul to soul. And it goes much further than all the petty tribes we claim. It's more deeply rooted than the partisan us and them that our world is, is, is structured by. And think of how this world would change if peacemakers, if Christians were sent into this world not to stoke up the us and them tribalism, but if we were sent into this world to bless people, to speak words of kindness and of grace. What if we could be trained to set aside the words that we so recklessly say to hurt people so that we can pick up the tradition from our Savior who used his words, even his dying last breath, to speak life into people? Friends, words create worlds. And may the words of this community create a world of healing where there is violence, a refuge where there is isolation, belonging where there is tribalism, Humility where there's condemnation and above everything else, words that bring peace for those who are desperate for Christ's love. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.